Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Thanks for listening today. As you may well know, this podcast has been something that evolved out of the teaching ministry that I have here at the chapel. And what I want to do today is basically reteach a sermon that I preached a few weeks ago. Due to some technical difficulties, one of the sermons I preached a few weeks ago wasn't able to be recorded, and I really wanted the content of that sermon to be able to share with uh, a couple friends of mine, and I don't have it right now. So I'm going to reteach the content of that sermon so that I can share it with you guys and share it with a few friends who I think are very interested in this particular topic. So on Sunday mornings, I've been preaching through the Old Testament with a focus on understanding the formation and the history of the nation of Israel and how that provides a foundation for God's dealings with the church. You know, in the New Testament, there are so many references that Jesus and the apostles make to events that happened in the Old Testament, particularly in the nation of Israel and the formation of the nation of Israel. And because of this, it's our belief that a Christian must accurately understand the Old Testament and what God was doing in the Old Testament in order to understand how those spiritual principles are applied in the New Testament era. Now, before I go any further, let me say this. At the Grace Brethren Chapel, we do not believe that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan for the ages. That is a particular school of theology known as replacement theology. And it basically says that when God made promises to Israel in the Old Testament, those promises that were unfulfilled in the Old Testament will be fulfilled in the church in the present age. We don't hold to that particular view. We believe that the church age, the age that we're presently living in, is a parenthesis in God's plan and program for the nation of Israel. And so when I'm looking at the Old Testament, or when our our other pastors are looking at the Old Testament, we are not saying that the way God treats Israel and everything that he promised to them is exactly the way that he treats the church and that all the promises given to Israel are promises that the church will receive. We don't believe that. We believe, however, that there are principles and spiritual realities that are overarching spiritual truths and theological concepts that God has introduced in the nation of Israel and has continued in the church age. One of those is his providence. For example, his providential care. He providentially cared for the nation of Israel. He providentially cares for the church in the present age. That is a foundational theological concept, a way that God relates to his chosen people. And I would argue that it's not just the church or Israel, but he did the same thing for Abraham. He did the same thing for Noah. He did the same thing for the forefathers who were before Noah. So 
there are these foundational spiritual and theological concepts that God has demonstrated throughout every age. And the reality for us as the church is that many of the theological concepts that we enjoy were also things that the nation of Israel enjoyed. Now, that doesn't mean that we are Israel, but it does mean, and this is the important point, that God is consistent in how he deals with his chosen people. He's consistent. He's the same God. And though the revelation may be different, what I'm talking about is the special revelation. We stand at the end or after God's revelation. It's been completed. We have the whole book. Israel, for a large part of their history, stood at the beginning of God's revelation, or they had none of it. In fact, the nation was around for many hundreds of years before Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So they didn't have God's revelation in the same way that we do today. But when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, it's obvious from the theological concepts that are found in God's dealings with Israel that God dealt with Israel in the same way, according to the same truths, that he deals with the church. Now, those are some hermeneutical principles. What I mean by hermeneutics is that's a way of interpreting Scripture. Hermeneutics is the study and the science of interpreting Scripture or language. And so the hermeneutical perspective that I have is that we are to interpret the text literally, grammatically, and historically. And we are to look for theological concepts that bind the Word of God together. And these theological concepts, because they are the same, they're unchanging. They point to the magnitude and the wisdom and the power and the knowledge that our God has far and above and against and opposed to every other God. You see, these theological concepts prove God's justice. They prove God's fairness. They prove that God is merciful and compassionate, but they also prove that God is holy and he's just, and when he decides to execute his judgments, he's not being unfair or unkind or cruel. So that may seem like a bit of a long introduction, but I feel like it's really important for you to understand the philosophy that I have when it comes to the scriptures, the philosophy that the other pastors at our church has when it comes to the scriptures, because the philosophy that you have when you approach the scripture will in some way color your interpretation of the word of God. Now, that brings me to the subject that's at hand. The text that we're going to begin looking at this morning is Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. A few weeks ago, the title that I had for the sermon was Big Picture Questions in the Exodus Narrative. 
And here we are confronted with two concepts that are certainly major in their theological ramification. The first, from the first part of the verse, is when God said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. So God is saying to Moses, Moses, I'm giving you the power and the ability to do great miracles. Make sure you do them all. You're going to do them before Pharaoh, and you're going to do them before all the people of, of Egypt and the people of Israel. And the purpose of these miracles is that it will confirm the word that I'm speaking to you. The purpose of miracles is that Pharaoh will know without a doubt that I, Yahweh, the great Lord, the creator of all, have spoken to you, and I will do exactly as I say. Miracles confirm the revelation of God. But the second part of this particular verse is what I want to focus on today. God says to Moses, do all these miracles at, with Pharaoh and the people of Egypt as your witness, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now that, that has caused a lot of discomfort for literally millions of readers of the scriptures over the years. How are we to understand the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? What does this even mean? That God says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Well, I think when you look at a subject that is so difficult, and really what we're talking about is his eternal salvation. What is the destiny of Pharaoh? It becomes very personal for people very quickly because if it's possible for God to harden people's hearts, then isn't God unjust and unfair that he hardens some people's hearts but not others? You know, if God wants all people to be saved, why would he harden anybody's heart? You know, these are just a few of the questions that come to mind when you think about this subject. I want to talk to you about this particular subject from really a wide-ranging biblical perspective. I talked about worldview last week in the podcast, and I think your biblical worldview is going to really help you understand what God is saying when he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he does not let the people go. Without a proper definition of the heart and harden and the limiting of these terms according to their biblical context, it's nearly impossible to answer this question in a satisfactory manner. So I'm going to do the best that I can to give you a proper definition, the proper context, and a proper understanding of how to think about this statement from God in relationship to other statements that God has made and in relationship to other theology that we find in the scriptures. First, we have to look at a biblical foundation for understanding the human heart. What are we talking about when we talk about the heart? In American culture, the heart is what you're supposed to follow. The heart is your true thoughts and reflections of yourself. 
the heart is generally portrayed as that which is good and loving and fanciful and it's romantic. The mind, on the other hand, in American culture is what prevents your heart from getting what you want. The mind makes the good choice, not the best choice. The mind makes the safe choice, not the risky choice. So in America, from a cultural perspective, we have a dichotomy in how we think about the heart and the mind. So when you see this word or this language used in the text of Scripture, you're like, oh, why would God want to crush the heart? Why would he, why would he want to take away that wonderful thing that we romanticize? Well, see, we are coming to the Scriptures with a preconceived notion of what the heart is. But we need to let the scriptures define heart. So in the scriptures, the heart is defined as the seat of the emotions, the intellect, the personality, and the will. All of those things are tied up together when you find that one little word heart, emotions, intellect, personality, and will. Proverbs 4.23 says that the heart is the wellspring of life, meaning everything you do in life originates from your heart and is expressed through your daily actions. Jesus, when he was talking with the Pharisees, because they were criticizing him and his disciples for not washing their hands correctly before they ate food, Jesus says this, Listen to me all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things that proceed out of the man are what defile the man. So Jesus is turning their ideas, the Pharisees' ideas, on top of their heads. There is nothing outside of the man that can defile him. So eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile you, but it's actually the things that are inside you that proceed out that defile the person, that cause them to be sinful. Jesus explains to his disciples, Are you lacking in understanding too? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And Jesus was saying, That which proceeds out of the man That is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So the heart, according to the scriptures, isn't this romanticized object that always leads you to the greatest good. No, no, the heart, according to the scriptures, is where all the evil thoughts come from. All the wicked that a man does originate in the heart and proceed out of the man through his words and his actions. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17.9 And Paul writes that all are dead in their trespasses and sins. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. And the word that theologians have for this condition is total depravity, which means completely corrupt and totally impure, 
unable to do any good. Now recall, good in the Bible refers to your moral being. It's a measurement of your moral condition. And in the Bible, only God is good, for he is the only one who is perfectly moral. So, when we talk about the heart, it is wicked. It is impure. It is not good. As Jeremiah says, it's deceitful and desperately sick. So, because the human heart has this condition, it is predisposed to do evil and to reject righteousness. Paul confirms this when he says, There is no one who seeks for God. There is no one who does good, not even one. So, as a conclusion to this idea of how do we define the human heart, instead of being surprised that anybody rejects the truth of the Word of God, we ought to rather be surprised that anyone believes the truth. Your heart is predisposed to be an enemy of God. Your heart is predisposed to hate God. Your heart is predisposed to do that which is wicked. And Pharaoh's heart was no different than any other person's. He was wicked. He was corrupt. He was prone to serve idols and not the true God. And so when you understand the heart from the biblical perspective, you have to realize that Pharaoh was already starting out with the short end of the stick because of the curse of sin. Because of what Adam did in the garden, the curse of sin spread to every man, and every man was separated from God at their very conception because they were not good. They were not moral. They had a sin nature. And you know, as well as I do, especially if you've had little kids, that it doesn't take very long for the sin nature to manifest itself in the life of a child. And the rebellion begins early and it continues. And if it is left unchecked by the word of God and the impartation of truth, the rebellion continues to grow and to grow and to grow. And so Pharaoh... He had a heart that was hard because of his rebellion to God, and he exalted himself and was not interested in serving or knowing or submitting to the true God. That concludes our definition of the human heart. There's more we could say for sure, but that'll suffice for now. It takes us to the next word that we must carefully define, which is this word harden or hardening. Now, the Hebrew word that is translated harden means to firm up or to strengthen. And the application of this word in relationship to Pharaoh and his action really means that he dug in according to the position that he already held. Pharaoh was like a stubborn child who throws himself on the ground and throws a temper tantrum rather than to obey. Pharaoh threw himself upon his unbelief rather than be convinced of the nature and character of the one true God. So the text of Scripture says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But God says here in the key verse that we are looking at, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So which is true? 
Which is true? Both are true. All right, it's not a trick question, but the reality is both are true, and thus two perspectives are accurately and adequately demonstrated for the reader. On the one hand, you have the responsibility of man. You know, consider Pharaoh's response to the divine revelation. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 10, Moses goes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh doesn't listen to him. And so Moses takes the staff and he throws the staff on the ground just as God commanded and the staff turned into a snake. And and Pharaoh's servants were able to do the same thing. They threw their staffs on the ground and they turned into snakes. But Moses' staff, the snake, ate all the other snakes. And then Moses reached out, grabbed the staff again, and it became a He reached out and grabbed the snake, excuse me, and it became a staff again. And the text says in verse 13, Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then you keep reading in chapter 7, and verse 22 says this, The magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern, even for this. Exodus 8.15, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would not listen to them. Exodus 8.32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. The evidence is overwhelming that there is a responsibility on the part of man when he is confronted with truth to repent, to submit to the truth of the word of God to acknowledge that Yahweh is the true God and it is clear and obvious from this particular series of scriptures that Pharaoh that Pharaoh had every opportunity to repent to acknowledge Yahweh and yet because of the hardness of his heart the wickedness of his heart because his heart was corrupt he did not consider God's word. He did not obey the word that was revealed to him. Pharaoh did what was wicked, what was according to his character as an unbeliever. Pharaoh had a responsibility to respond positively to God's message, and he did not respond positively. And so the responsibility of man is to, when confronted with the word of God, repent from wicked actions and deeds, and begin to obey the word of God. Pharaoh did not do this. On the other hand, there's a second perspective demonstrated to the reader, and that is of God's sovereign will. See, God had a foreknowledge of who Pharaoh was and what he would use him for, And God had purposes for Pharaoh that he had established from before the foundation of the world. And that's what we looked at at the very beginning. Exodus 4.21b, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Notice, that is a future tense verb. A future tense verb. In the future, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart wasn't just to be mean. It wasn't to be spiteful. No, God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart was was that so he would be magnified. 
and that he would demonstrate that he alone is the only true God. And he would make the Egyptians an example to the other nations and the surrounding regions regarding the power of himself and of the God that Israel was to serve. Consider what Exodus 9, 15, and 16 says. This is God speaking to Pharaoh. If by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. So God decreed these judgments which came about as in the form of supernatural miracles upon Pharaoh and upon his people. And God told, had told Abraham nearly 600 years prior to the actual occurrence of these judgments that they would happen. So we see very plainly that God had a sovereign will that he was going to impose on this one particular individual, Pharaoh, and on this people, Egypt, for his grand purposes. Now you may say, man, that just does not seem fair. You know, especially from an American perspective, where we value justice and fairness as one of the most revered characteristics or the most revered policies or virtues that is in existence in the world today, this idea that God would somehow in the past have determined to harden Pharaoh's heart just rubs us the wrong way. But what we really need to think about is, what was God starting with? You see, when we defined what the human heart was and what its condition is, that gave the starting point for this whole endeavor with Pharaoh. Where was Pharaoh's heart? It was totally depraved. He was an enemy of God. He was not interested in seeking God no matter what. And the miracles only served to confirm Pharaoh's unbelief. They caused him to dig into his position what we should really be amazed at is not that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What we should really be amazed at is that God allows anybody to come to a saving knowledge at all. Paul uses this very passage in the New Testament to describe God's incredible mercy and God's perfect justice. In Romans chapter 9, he says this, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Well, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Paul's making the argument that, man, there are people who are striving to serve God or striving to seek after God or thinking that they're doing the right thing. But the reality is, it doesn't matter what your own individual effort is. It's up to God 
who is the one who has mercy on the ones he wants to have mercy and compassion on those he wants to have compassion. Verse 17 of Romans 9. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? That's a great question. But the answer is very condemning of our questioning attitude. Paul's answer is this, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? You see, God, because he is the creator, he has fashioned us according to his plan and his purpose. Yes, he made us in his image. But when Adam sinned in the garden, the curse of sin that came upon the creation because of Adam has in some ways altered the way that humans interact with God. It altered it to such an extent that no longer can we walk with God like Adam did in the garden on a face-to-face basis. No, we need an intermediary because we are not any longer seeking God from a pure heart. No, we don't seek God at all, and we have a wicked and deceitful heart. That's why God put in place a plan to one day send a Redeemer. We know him as the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this passage right here in Romans chapter 9, this is one of the reasons why it's critical and essential to understand what God was doing in the Old Testament. And this whole story of Pharaoh that I have laid out for you from the scriptures discusses both the responsibility that Pharaoh had to act according to the truth that was revealed to him and God's sovereign will and his response to Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart. You may think, man, this seems really cruel, but it's not. In fact, there is a New Testament parallel earlier in the book of Romans Paul says that there are people who reject the truth of God and they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. What does anybody know about God? What does a person who has never had the Bible know about God? Well, God has made it intrinsically possible for human beings to recognize his creative power when they look at the world around them. When you gaze up into the stars at night, when you look at the changing of the seasons, when you consider the wonderfulness of new growth every year uh, through the cycle of the four seasons, you look around and you think, wow, there must be a creator who did all this. I should worship that creator but people don't do that. Why? Because their heart is totally depraved. Even though God made it evident to them, they reject the truth of God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says this, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that everyone is without excuse. Because everybody had the opportunity to know God through the creation, but they suppressed the truth about God. What did they do? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. What did these people do? If we were going to use the Hebrew term, we would say these people hardened their heart against God's revelation of himself in creation. These people hardened their hearts against the glory of the incorruptible God, and they chose rather to create gods in their own images, in the image of man and of birds and four-footed animals. So what was God's response to them? Verse 24 of Romans 1, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, what did Pharaoh know? He knew the ordinance of God. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This, my friends, in Romans chapter 1, is the parallel theological situation to what was occurring with Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7 through 10. Pharaoh kept receiving the word of God. Pharaoh kept seeing the miracles of God, but he kept rejecting those things. He kept digging in on his current position. He kept hardening his heart. And finally, God got to a point where he said, that's it. Your time is done. I'm not, I'm not going to be gracious to you any longer. Instead of giving you the opportunity to repent, I'm going to harden you further. I am going to take over this hardening process and it will lead to your destruction. Wow. That's humbling and sobering. And what keeps us from saying, wow, God is unfair and unjust is this one basic truth. God is holy, holy, holy. He is set apart from sin. And what we don't understand is that God is so holy. God is so righteous. God is so different from us as sinners that we can't fathom how much our sin grieves him. We can't fathom how much even the smallest sin that we commit offends him. And so when we look at these passages and say, man, God gave them over? That doesn't seem right. What we should be saying instead is, 
Why didn't God give me over? Why am I not the one who is suffering under God's wrath? I deserve it just as much as they do, maybe even more. God gives mercy to those who don't deserve it, and we rejoice in that truth. We should therefore not be angry when God says that he hardens certain individuals and that certain individuals he hardens for purposes that are beyond our comprehension, but for his glory, his honor, to display his power. I think the resolution as believers is to acknowledge that all things God does are just. He is not going to violate his sinless nature in any way, shape, or form. God is never wrong, whether he demonstrates mercy or causes a hardening. And that, for the believer, must cause us to humbly acknowledge that our ways are not God's ways. And aren't you glad that God is not like us? I certainly am. For it means that God alone can be glorified by a person's faithful obedience. But God can also be glorified through someone's disobedience and rejection. Because their disobedience is contrasted with his holiness. And that magnifies him and helps us to understand that we are but mere creatures who have to faithfully serve the Creator. Well, thank you for your time today. These are weighty truths indeed, and certainly uh, I could expound upon them further. We could look at other biblical texts, but I hope that you will really think through this idea of the hardening. What does it mean? What is God intending to show? But through that, realize that God's mercy, that he would save us from that process of hardening, that he would cause us to repent and to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is a marvelous and wonderful truth, and we certainly don't deserve that. We, we do deserve judgment, but God's mercy is greater. God's compassion is outstanding. God's love is overwhelming. May you be blessed as you think through these truths and seek to put them into practice in your life. I want to give a big thank you to S. Lore Productions for helping me produce the podcast. If you have any comments or questions, please email me at if you have any comments or questions or follow-ups to the podcast, please email me at gracebrethrenchapel at gmail.com. Put Jed Breaks Bread in the subject title, and I'll be sure to get it, and I will respond to you. Maybe do a follow-up podcast or a personal email. You can worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Check us out on the web at www.gbchapel.com. Until next time, God bless.